And right now we are in a sermon series called Hidden Glory. And this is about 23 verses, but let them sink deep. If you have to, whatever you gotta do, get comfortable. Close your eyes, open your eyes, stare at something. Stare at Francis. Lord knows she's nervous enough. <laughs> but this is incredible stuff. So let this word of God penetrate your hearts. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those who you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For, for the words that you gave me, I have given to them and they have received them and know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them was lost, except the one destined to be lost, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask that you protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they may be sanctified in truth. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will, be who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. 
I am in them and you are in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Can we give thanks to Francis for reading that this morning? Love it. You know, it's the longest prayer recorded in Scripture that Jesus prays, and it's a prayer about you. What a thought. He's praying for you, and if you caught it towards the end of that prayer, he says, God, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. Now, the Hebrew word for glory is the word kabod. What a great word. Let me hear you say kabod. Every week that you're here, you get to say that if you're new. Uh, you said it for the first time, this word that we translate as glory literally means heaviness. It means weightiness. It means significance. You've been hearing me say that if you were to throw a toothpick at me, a paper clip, anything lightweight, if it hit me because it weighs less than me, I would not be moved by it. But if you were to take a, that piano, that Steinway, uh, if you were to rig it up to a pulley system and, and swing it from the, the rafters, and if I didn't get out of the way, it would, it would move me, Right? Because it's heavier than me. Heavier things, glorious things, move us. What's fascinating in Scripture, in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That the full weight of the heaviness and the impact and the significance of God is in Jesus. And Jesus prays, God, that glory you gave me, I'm giving everybody who believes in me. And so we're in a series right now called Hidden Glory. What a thought that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that God literally hides the weightiest thing in the cosmos in you. And he is longing to call that out. He's longing for you to make an impact, for you to have such significance in this world. Because on one hand, we all long for that, and we're, we're trying to find glory in different ways. And God says, the glory that I've given you is real weight, real significance, real impact. Now, there's something that's been playing out uh, recently that is a great example of this. In fact, it's something that's been around for a long time. And it, it seems like people are finally beginning to take note. It seems like people are finally starting to wake up to this reality. And and in many ways, this is such a great example of the character of God, this thing that I've been seeing. It's this thing that in many ways illustrates the exact point of this sermon series. It's this thing that people are getting excited about, that people are giving money to, that people are saying, yes, I identify with that. It's something that's been actually reminding me of God's nature, God's character. It's sharpening me. It's reminding me of the call of the church and why we exist. And it's giving me hope. Do you want to hear what it is? It's the L.A. Dodgers. Right? Okay. Now hang with me here. Some of you, it's your first time and you're like, what? Some of you who have been here for 61 years are like, what? But some of you are like, yes. Finally, Drew, you're talking about the Dodgers. Now, if, let me just say this. I grew up here in L.A. And I remember exactly where I was when Kirk Gibson Gibby rounded second base. Remember that game too? Amazing. I remember exactly where I was. Now, here's what's fascinating. I read an article recently about the Los Angeles Dodgers. And what was interesting about this, you know, if you've been following, you know that they have the greatest league, uh, or they have the greatest uh, record in baseball right now. Uh, they almost swept the first two series on their way to the World Series that start this Tuesday night and then game two Wednesday night. And I know the whole schedule. Um, 
Oh, man, I'm so excited. Um, and there's this article that came out and said, you know, there's a lot of people who are saying that the reason why the Dodgers have made it and have the best record right now is because they have the largest payroll. But this article uh, said, actually, when you take a look at it, that's not true. Because there's some people who are making whew, upwards of $23 million a year who have sat on the bench most of the season. There are some who were projected in the beginning of the season to be like the heroes through the season who have kind of ended up as, as duds. And there are certain people who actually uh, were at the bottom of what you could get in the majors, who earned the least amount of money that you could, who have now become heroes in the playoffs. There's some even who weren't even on the team in the beginning of the season. There's some that were playing triple-A ball as recently as September 3rd who were being called out and are now playing lights-out baseball. That's a good thing, by the way. And as they go into the game on Tuesday night, there is a narrative that's going around saying, wow, these Dodgers, there's something magical. There's something special. It seems like the unlikeliest players are the heroes. And it reminds me of how God operates. It reminds me of who God uses. Because we live in a world where we think that we know who's going to make the impact. We live in a world where we look at people's resumes, how much money they have, what position they have, uh, whatever it might be. And we look from a world's point of view and we project, looking ahead and we say, okay, that's going to be the leader. That's going to be a person of impact. And we know, we experience, we look back and we say, wow, I never would have imagined that would have happened. And as you watch the Dodgers win for the first time in the World Series in 29 years later on this week, in six games, <laughs> or whatever it is. By the way, I ordered, I, I ordered off of eBay a uh, Kirk Gibson 1988 authentic tank top to wear. Um, you will not see me in public wearing it, but it is, uh, it's going to remind me of how God uses the most unlikely people for special things. And some of you are like, where is this going? Well, it's going to go right back to God's word. Why don't you open up your Bibles to Romans 16. In fact, we're going to take a look at the life of a phenomenal woman, a leader in the early church. Somebody who, as you go to Romans 16, verse 3, it's on page 925 in your pew Bible. I'm just going to read these. Through, uh, sorry, Ron, I jumped. The, what, what page is it, Ron? 925. 925. So I, we were right. Okay, 925. Priscilla, uh, it's listed here as Prisca, another shorthand way of saying her name. Uh, imagine her as one of those people whom you would not guess to be a leader, to be a hero, to have such impact, to have such influence. Let me read this, Romans 16, verses 3 through the first verse of 5. Greet Prisca, that's Priscilla, and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, and who risk their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. This, my friends, includes the reading of God's word. All right, let me just do a quick little overview over the life of Priscilla. Some of you might not know who she is. Some of you love who she is, and it's just a great reminder. So first of all, she is a Roman citizen. Uh, she is married to a man named Aquila. 
And though a Roman uh, citizen and a resident of Rome, there was a leader of Rome about 20 years after Peter preaches this phenomenal sermon, thousands are coming to Christ. The leader at that time kind of hears rumblings of an uprising. He doesn't know who it is. And so he actually, he banishes all the Jewish people from Rome. She is now sent out. She has to leave home. Imagine she has to pick up everything. She's uprooted. She becomes a refugee and moves to Corinth. And in Corinth, she meets a man named Paul. They hit it off. Her and her husband and Paul, we don't know if she was a believer in Christ before that, but quickly we begin to see that there is this love of Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing is that she uses her generosity, her hospitality, uh, and she opens up her home, her and Aquila. And Paul lives with them for 18 months. There's no description of any other person or couple in the New Testament that opens up their home longer to Paul than them. What's fascinating is that as time goes by, they end up with Paul moving to Ephesus. And the crazy thing here is the moment they get to Ephesus, the apostle Paul is like, all right, now that we're here, see ya. And he takes off. But while they're there, they meet another man named Apollo. So I want to show you something. Open those Bibles up to Acts 18. And this is simply just still an overview before we get to some of the points that I want to share with you and what that means for us today as a church and as individuals. But in Acts 18, Ron, what number is that? 903. Quick on the draw. Verse 24. Acts 18, 24. Again, just a little highlight of Priscilla's life this moment. Now there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately." And when he wished to cross over to Achaia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. On his arrival, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had become believers, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah is Jesus. Now, Apollos was one of the first and great leaders of the first century church. There's actually a moment in the book, uh, 1 Corinthians, that talks about how some people in Corinth are actually debating Who's a better teacher? Who's a better leader? Is it Paul or Apollos? This man whom we don't always talk about was such a tremendous leader in the early church that he's kind of put up in the echelon with Paul and Peter. In fact, some scholars believe, you know the book of Hebrews? Some people think that Apollos is the author of the book of Hebrews. But he needed a mentor. He needed to be guided. He needed to be instructed. He needed to be discipled. He needed to be coached. Think about the impact that he uh, almost didn't have had not someone or some people stepped into his life. Well, who was that person? Who was that couple? It was Priscilla and Aquila. Now, I imagine some of you are like, well, that's great. That's cool. Some of you are probably like, well, I'm sure it was Aquila. Because, you know, only men are good teachers. I know some people have that viewpoint. And, you know, Priscilla kind of just tagged along. 
I know how the world works. Maybe some of you are like, oh, well, Priscilla, maybe she, you know, it was her hospitality, but it was really Aquila that was the, the powerful leader of Apollos. Well, there's evidence in Scripture that that's not true at all. In fact, seven times Priscilla's name is brought up in the New Testament. Every single time her name is brought up, yes, her husband is also brought up. But five out of the seven times that they are listed, she is listed first. You don't just do that without thinking through it. You don't do that in the first century without very intentionally thinking through that. Every scholar that I've read who really allows Scripture to speak the truth rather than trying to read their own truth in a Scripture says, well, it's absolutely clear here that Priscilla was the leader. Priscilla was the discipler. Priscilla perhaps had more strengths, more skills. Why else would she be listed first? And here's this amazing thing, is that this man Apollos, who became this great leader of the church, was discipled, we believe, primarily by Priscilla. And one of the beautiful things about our church, and one of the reasons why many of you are here, is because we are a Presbyterian church. And part of being a Presbyterian church is we believe in our denomination that both men and women can teach. That there's not this hierarchy that men are better than women. It's not about that at all. We believe that when God gets a hold of somebody, male or female, young or old, no matter where you've been born, where you live, how much money you have in your bank account, when God gets a hold of you, he will use you to the ends of the earth. And some of you are here and you love that about our church, and I want to affirm that you love that. And some of you are like, ah, oh, I can take it or leave it. I want you to listen to this sermon today. Now, some of you, I'm just guessing in a group this size, maybe some of you are like, you know, I, I, I really... I can't learn anything from a woman. I've heard that in my life growing up. There's some churches that firmly believe that. I'm telling you, you are missing out on the life that God has called you to. You are not living a life that is consistent with God's nature, God's heart, what God reveals in God's word. And if Apollos was willing to say, Priscilla, teach me, Aquila, teach me, and look what God did in his life as a result of that. What could God do in your life if you allow people qualified to teach the word of God to speak into your life? I know there's some people, you know, who say, uh, I don't personally know this, but I know that in a group this size that when Pastor Kim or Pastor Care or if we have a woman preacher come in, that they're like, ah, you know what? I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to go to the golf course. You know, I'll, I'll wait till a guy comes back. You know, that, that happens. That's wrong. And you're missing out. Because all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, there's this amazing, not only Jesus who had female disciples. That was unheard of. No one ever did that in the first century. There was no rabbi in the first century that allowed women to follow as students, as disciples. But it's not just that. Women were leaders in the church. And in Romans 16, there's actually a list of people that the Apostle Paul is thanking, and at least 11 of them are women. And so we live in a world where we have messed things up so much. And I could spend an hour looking at culture and say, my gosh, how have we gotten so... You can look at the, the headlines in Hollywood right now. And there's women courageously finally speaking up, understandably because they've had so much fear that they would lose their reputation, that they would lose jobs. 
And how heartbreaking is it that the victims were the ones who finally had to speak up first, that people in power weren't speaking up first. And we live in a world where, where things are so messed up that these power plays and people on the margins are, are so distorted. And I find in Scripture, in the church, in God's desire for how people can live, the answer to all the things that are broken in this world and we have an opportunity to be a church to learn and to listen and to be led by Priscilla. And so I want to walk through a few points that I believe that God has for you, for me, for all of us today. And the first one is this. When we look at the life of Priscilla, it reminds us that every believer is given the weight of God's glory. Let me say that again. Every believer. Every believer is given the weight of God's glory. Let that truth sink into you for a moment. The glory, the weight, the heaviness, the significance of God. Uh, a glory that has the power to speak things into existence. Though we aren't God, we can't speak things into existence. I've tried. It doesn't work. There is a level of influence and of power for God's glory, for God's purposes that God has literally hidden in every single one of us and every single one of you. And we live in a world where we think because of how we look, where we were born, what people have said about us, how much we make, what level of health we're at, male, female, young or old, we, we, we might think of these things and say, I am unqualified to be used by God. God says, no then you don't understand my glory. You don't understand what I have put inside you. There's this great quote, and I love it. It says this, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, but rather our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? This person who I'll mention in a moment that wrote this says this, Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your plane small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. In fact, we are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give people the permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Now, this quote has been mistakenly attributed to Nelson Mandela. It was written by a woman, Marian Williamson. And there's certain things that even within that quote that I would disagree with. For example, when she says that it's our light that shines, I would say, well, actually, what Scripture says is that when we are children of God, that it's actually Christ's light that shines in and through us. That it's not us in our own strength, in our own power, in our own goodness, for our own goodness, and we use God to, to kind of prop ourselves up, but rather that God is, he's hidden glory and power and beauty and love and integrity and all these things in your life. Don't shrink back. God is calling you forth, and he's longing for people to be a church that says, me? Okay, God, if you say it, then I'll step forward. God is calling us to be a church to see that glory in each other. That we would look at other people and that's, you know, it's so easy to say, you know, and I know this is kind of what we do in culture. We kind of talk to the exterior of a person. We compliment the exterior of a person. 
Hey, I like, the, I like that new car you got. Oh, nice shoes, nice handbag. Oh, where'd you get your haircut? You know, hey, I heard about this thing. You know, we, we speak to the, the human glory. And it's so easy to get into that. It, it, it's kind of culturally acceptable. That's the level of conversation that, that most of the world lives at. But what I'm talking about is this, that God would use you to get under the surface and say, I see something in you. That there's a passion to serve God, that there's a boldness in Christ, that you actually have this level of peace that doesn't make sense in the midst of your cancer diagnosis. God is doing something in you, and I, I want you to share that with other people. We have an opportunity to encourage one another. And that literally means to give each other courage to let the fullness of who God has created us to be shine forth. But you've got to know that Priscilla, it was hard, it was difficult. In a male-dominated world, as a refugee, in a place where it was illegal to be Christian, she was so bold, she was so courageous, and God used her in such tremendous ways because she believed who God said she was. But it's more than that. Priscilla reminds us to do two things at once, to be a pro and to be an amateur. You see, she was a pro. She was a professional tent maker. That was her profession. And as she's listed more often, is the first name between Priscilla and Aquila as a married couple, both tent makers, that was their profession. It would be accurate to say that likely she was the leader, not just in the professional world, but in this church service. She was the first century version of the CEO of REI. And she had such tremendous influence. She was a woman of integrity, of business chops. She was an absolute professional in the community. That's what she did. And we have an opportunity to be taught by Priscilla that whatever we do for work, whatever thing that we do, whether we love it, whether we hate it, where we feel like we're stuck in it, where we feel like we've finally gotten to it, we have an opportunity to, to work unto the Lord, not just earthly masters, that we have an opportunity to be the ones that have the best work ethic, that have the most integrity, that are the kindest bosses, that are the best employees. You see, Priscilla reminds us that it matters how we show up to our Monday through Friday, 9 through 5, as if that's the only hours that we work. That when we work at our profession, that we have an opportunity to represent who God has made us to be, to be absolute professionals. Every single one of us can learn from that, to grow in that. But it's not just to be more of a professional in our work, it's also to be an amateur. She was a real amateur. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. You see the word amateur over the years has kind of become this, this, this word that we use for all. <laughs> what a hack. <laughs> what an amateur. I mean, amateur hour here. You know, we use that phrase as if it's kind of like second class. It's, you know, low quality. But you, you do realize that the word amateur has in it the root word for love, amour. It literally meant in the very beginning, someone who did something for the love of it. She was a complete amateur because everything she did for the Lord, for God's kingdom, mentoring, serving, hospitality, leading, she didn't do it for pay. She didn't do it for her own glory. She didn't do it to, to climb the church ladder. She did it for the love of it. She was a complete amateur. And every single one of us can learn from Priscilla on that, whether some of us on staff are paid for our role. My heart is that we would be amateurs first. That our heart attitude would be one that we do this for the love of it. And Bellard Church, it's been around for 61 years. It has taken a trajectory that most churches do as time goes by. 
as time goes by, there can be this, this over-reliance upon the staff. As time goes by, there can be this over-reliance on, well, you know, only pastors should pray. You know how often I go and have dinner with some people and they're like, oh, the pastor's here, you should pray. We've, we've, we've so lost this concept that every single person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ has been given God's spirit, has been given gifts, is an indispensable part of the whole. That after a while we think church is just this thing that we show up to and we watch the, the professionals lead the service. And maybe some of you, you want to volunteer, you want to get engaged, and you're like, put me in, you know, I want to do these things. And maybe over the years you've been met with some resistance. That's us as a staff. That is our fault. That's not yours. And some of the changes that we're trying to make as a church is to return us more to a biblical approach of church that says that every single person has a part to play. Every single one of us, whether we're paid or not, have an opportunity to be amateurs for Christ to bring the fullness of our gifts and our passions and service. Whether it's serving with the children, whether it's going on global service teams, whether it's investing for God's glory in different parts of the city, whether it's leading small groups, all these things, we have an opportunity to do such tremendous things. And it leads me to the third point of what Priscilla reminds us, is that every believer is called to be a church planter. Let me say that again. Every believer is called to be a church planter planter. And some of you, if you've been around church, you're like, say what? Plant a church. I mean, isn't that what you, like, you're supposed to do, pastor? Well, again, church is not a building. It's not an hour on Sunday. Church is a community of people who are defined by the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus says, whenever two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there. Wherever Jesus is, there is the church. What did Priscilla do? She opened up her home. People came, they worshiped Jesus, they talked about Jesus, they studied the scriptures, they prayed for one another, they thought, God, how can you use us in our communities? That was the church. And I want you to hear this, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to church planting. That every time you go to a restaurant, the moment you bring up Jesus with somebody else, in that moment a church is planted. That when you open up your home to have people over and you're studying God's word, when you're praying with one another, when you're worshiping together, if you formally, if you lead a small group, a church has been planted. There's all these moments throughout your week, there's all these wasted moments that I go in, in my own life where I miss opportunities to plant the church. Priscilla was phenomenal at following that call to plant the church. So much so the apostle says, greet all the believers in her home, these Christians, the church that met in her home, do you have any idea of what this church could look like if we took that call seriously? Yes, we gather as the church on Sundays. We gather and we worship and we grow together. But what if you went back into your homes, in your apartments, in your condos, in your workplaces, and you saw opportunities everywhere to rally around, to gather around who Jesus is? There could be a thousand churches planted this week. Let that soak in for a moment. That, that's important. I'm not going to rush on. I'm going I'm to keep you here because I have a microphone. 
okay? I want that to sink in. There can be a thousand churches planted this week through this church. And I'm not talking about you going out and trying to find a building and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, okay, what, what time, what, I guess we've got to get a website now and uh, we've got to get business cards and uh, do we have to apply for a 5013C and what should our name be? No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that whenever you gather, when two people gather in the name of Jesus, Jesus is there in the same quality, in the same quantity as Jesus is here right now. You know how much this city is missing out on because we think that church is just in this place. A thousand churches can be planted this week by just the people in this room. If we add the 830 and the 5 and all those online, there could be thousands of churches planted this week. The church is such an organic, beautiful thing. Allow Priscilla to lead you in this, to teach you in this. She opened up her home. Complete amateur. She did it for the love of it. That leads me to the fourth point that Priscilla teaches us. She was willing to risk it all for Jesus Christ. She was willing to risk it all for Jesus. And why would I say that? Well, if you look again, you can look at it now or later in Romans 16, verse 4, it says that you know, Priscilla and the boy Aquila, they, they, they risked their lives for me. They risked their lives for me. We don't know what that is. We don't know what it was. We just know that they did. At some point, didn't just risk the reputation, didn't just risk a job, they didn't just risk sales and their tent-making business in the first century. No, no, no. So at some point, they said, this life of following Jesus, the kingdom of God is, is so worthy of an investment that it's worth giving my life for. It's not just worth giving a tip. It's not just worth giving an hour on a Sunday. It's not just uh, worth just, just, just a portion of my life as it neatly fits in whenever it's convenient. No, no, no. This thing is worth everything to me. And I've got to tell you, as I've been preparing for this sermon, it has struck me that Priscilla's got something to teach me in this area. Because I can tell you, there's not been one moment in my life where there was a possibility that I might die for my faith. So I've never been in that situation. I don't know if any of you have ever been in that situation. It's much more likely that we've been in those situations like the first century Christians who experienced that every time they gathered. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Maybe some of us are going to experience that more. But I ask myself the question, would I risk it all? I mean, yes, I'm a preacher, and yes, I love Jesus, and yes, I, I, I do this for the love of it. I mean, the fact that I was led to Christ through this church as a college student, the fact that I get to serve in this way, there, there's so much joy. It's such a beautiful thing. But, but if it came down to it, would I risk my life? Would I really do that for Jesus? And I want to rush past thinking about it and just say, oh, well, of course. But I feel like God's spirit is saying, well, slow down, Drew. I want you to answer that question. Because Priscilla answered that question with her actions. And I'm in this place of saying, God, wow, I want to grow in my love of you. 
Holy Spirit, I, I, I want you to give me so much courage that if I ever get to that place that I would unequivocally say yes, I would give my life for you. Now here's my question to you. How much would you risk for Jesus? And if you actually allow yourself to consider that, that question, I mean, actually pray about it and think about it, maybe take it home and, and process it, and maybe even talk with family or friends or people in your home or your small group, you know, to talk to people about it. If you actually engage in that, that question, Priscilla is leading you. 2,000 years later, she, she's leading you, she's modeling for you what Christ calls all of us to, to not just come and see, not just come and follow, but to come and die. And imagine what this world would look like if Christians let Priscilla and others lead them and say, you know what? God is worth it. Jesus is absolutely worth it. That the more I look at the love of Jesus Christ and the fact that he came to me and out of a gift he gave his life. He didn't go to the cross as a victim. He came victorious and, and he did all. He went to the ends of the earth. He died for me. The more that we fixate and worship and, and, and acknowledge that, the more that we only have one response. Well, of course, I would give my life in return. I imagine there was a moment when Priscilla was speaking into the life of Apollos that maybe he was convicted, maybe there was a disconnect, maybe he thought, oh, wow. I imagine perhaps there was a moment where he would have just said, well, that, that's, uh, I'm just going to compartmentalize and put that off over there. But he didn't. He allowed Priscilla to, to lead him, to allow Aquila to lead him. And he made such a tremendous impact in the world. Don't rush past this moment. Who knows how just this sermon, just this moment, just this question might change the trajectory of your life. How much would you risk for Jesus Christ? Who knows when you actually process that and actually consider that and pray about it, who knows how God will use that for other people's lives, you have no idea the chain reaction of what's going to happen. You have no clue. But God says one day you're going to know. When you're in God's presence, I, I absolutely believe we're going to have a full picture. That's what the Bible says. We're going to have a full picture of what God has done in us and through us. Don't miss the future blessing and the gifts and the opportunities and the impact of God's glory that's already in you to be unleashed on this world. Boy, and it brings, brings me back to the Dodgers. Uh, in human terms, there was a lot of glory hidden on that bench. A lot of glory, a lot of impact. And there was a moment where a coach had to say, it's your time, off the bench, come on, putting you in. My man, Kiki Hernandez. Any Kiki Hernandez fans here? Okay, this man. Okay, ready for this? Uh, no one at all projected the fact uh, that he would come off the bench. He would hit three home runs in one game, one of them a grand slam. No one would project that he would do that 
now having the all-time record for the most RBIs, the most runs batted in in a postseason of any player in, in baseball history. Because Kiki, yes, yes. Because he said, put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. There's a lot of hidden glory on the benches of these pews right now. And part of it is you've got to be willing to say, put me in, coach. No, 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 don't look at me. Jesus. He's the coach. He's the head of this church. You have to have a heart. You have to have a willingness to show up, to suit up and say, put me in, Jesus. Put me in. And a lot of games will go by where you're going to sit there and maybe it's not your time yet, perhaps, or maybe you get put in and pulled off. There's moments of, well, I don't know. But there's going to be a moment. If you say, put me in Jesus, there's going to be a moment where Jesus says, right now, right here, with your coworker, right here, right now, with your spouse, right here, right now, with your neighbor, right here in this small group, right now in this service opportunity, right now with this global service, right now in your giving, right now, right now is the moment I'm putting you in. And if you've been saying, put me in Jesus up to that point, if you've been showing up, prayed up, suited up in the armor of Christ, in the righteousness of Christ, who knows what God's going to do? Kiki! And I absolutely believe that that Jesus is, is shouting your name, longing for you to just step onto the field of life. Oh, man. I'm telling you, there's hidden glory everywhere, and it's God's glory. Allow Jesus to to let it shine through you. Let's call it out of each other. And let's sit for a moment in prayer before we respond in worship. Let's pray. Loving God, in this moment, I'm just prompted to just spend a moment longer to acknowledge you. Jesus, you are the one that gives us a glory that is weightier, more significant, heavier than all things. And so, God, I pray for the people here today that are hurting, that are broken, that on one hand can't believe that could be true. I pray that your love would penetrate through their brokenness, through their doubts, through their shame. That Jesus, your loving eyes would meet theirs. That they would believe that Jesus, you love them. That it was worth it when Jesus, you died for them. We pray for broken relationships in this room, broken hopes, broken dreams. We pray for those that are crushed by the weight of circumstances in their life. And Jesus, I pray that your glory, which is weightier than all, would displace that heaviness, that you would heal them, that you would redeem them, that you would transform them for your glory. And God, I pray for anyone here today who is yet to say yes to you, Jesus. God, in this moment, which you've seen for all of eternity, is a moment that I pray that People here, whether online or in person, would clearly hear an invitation from you, God. An invitation that Jesus simply says, come, just follow me. Follow me. 
God, you tell us in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that whenever somebody confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that, Jesus, you are Lord, a king, a master, a coach, a leader, and you are our Savior, you redeem us, you, you set us free, you make us whole, that when we acknowledge that you are Lord and Savior, that, that we are saved, that we'll never be put to shame. So God, I pray that as we respond in worship, as some sit, as some stand, as some hear this many months or years from now on a podcast, God, I pray that it would be your spirit that would enlighten and illuminate their heart to say yes to you, Jesus, for the first time. That they would know that in Scripture that when one person turns to you, when one person repents, it literally means to turn, when they turn back to you, that there's rejoicing in heaven among the angels. So God, in this moment, would you use a woman who lived 2,000 years ago, a refugee, a Roman citizen who loved you, Jesus, would her story, would her life be a catalyst that would lead someone, just one, to you, Jesus, to confess and believe that you are Lord and Savior? So God, we give you space right now to work in hearts and in minds to bring us back to you. May we respond and worship. You alone are worthy. Jesus, it's in your name I pray. And we say together, 